The following podcast is brought to you by Marks with Mikes. I have no problem calling people Marks. No, no, it's just, don't tell me! Mark. Don't tell me! Are you kidding me? Marcus. Marcus. Just got put through the table! Some Marcus trick just stepped on my sneaker. Oh my God! Welcome to the Marks with Mike's podcast. Here are your hosts, Mr. Six Foot Nine, Ryan Mack, and Dre the Juice Man. And welcome to another edition of Marks with Mike's. I am your host, Mr. Six Foot Nine, JT the Godfather. This is episode number 42. Right now, if you've been paying attention to the Twitter page, you already know what's going on. You already know who's on the show. But I'm going to go ahead and give him a proper introduction. He's a former ECW heavyweight champion, a former WWF hardcore champion. You've seen him in Impact Wrestling. You've seen him inside WWE, Raw, SmackDown. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the hardcore icon, the hardcore legend, Justin Credible. Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing fantastic, doing just fine. Uh, definitely glad to have you on the show. Uh, great to have you. Uh, let me get these listeners caught up to speed. If you do not know who Justin Credible is, you were probably born in 2010. But uh, with that being said, uh, go ahead and let these listeners know a little bit more about yourself. How did you break into the business? Uh, I broke into the business in the summer of 1992. Uh, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Connecticut. So I flew um, on my, uh, eight, well, still 18, I flew out to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, all the way up in the Rocky Mountains there. And I was trained by the legendary hearts uh, up there. And uh, one of the guys that um, had gone through the Hart Brothers training camp um, the year prior was Lance Storm. So uh, Lance Storm was up there. Chris Jericho had trained with the Hearts a year before in Lance's class. So Lance had a lot of uh, a lot of real hands-on uh, training me, and uh, Jericho would pop in uh, once in a while too. So it was uh, nothing but great guys to be around at a very early age, kind of molding you. So uh, that's how I got my start. Now, was this something that you knew that you were going to do back in high school or, you know, what what made you say, you know what, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. I'm going to take bumps. What hooked you? Well, I mean, I don't know, man. I was always, for me, being uh, just a huge fan of Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, of, of real good wrestling. And what made me make that choice to go to Calgary, really, um, was the, the, how great the hearts were. Uh, they had Brett the Hitman Hart, Owen Hart, of course. And um, back in those days, too, wrestling was not as open as it is today with the Internet and social media. There were so many wrestling schools. Back then, it was hard to get uh, contact. So I finally got a number from a pro wrestling illustrated magazine, uh, you know, to set this up. But, uh, man, just getting in from, from just being a fan and, uh, going to the heart, it just made me really always want to be the best pro wrestler I could be. And I guess that's what really motivated me in the, in the beginning, you know, most deaf. Uh, so from you training inside the heart dungeon, I mean, you're training with a bunch of legends, uh, Chris Jericho, Lance storm, and not to mention everyone that came up before you, you had Davey boy, Smith, Jim, the anvil, Nightheart, Brett Owen. I mean, the whole entire heart organization. I mean, going through that grueling training, I mean, it must've been tough in your body. And right after that, you know, you bust right into the indie scene, right? Yeah, well, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's really it. I, well, what happened was um, I, I trained in Calgary the summer of 92. I came home for uh, a month just to regroup, man, because it was the first time I'd been away from home that long in my entire life. I was 18. So I went back to Calgary in October uh, the following the same year, like a month and a half after being home. And uh, in 19, uh, October 16th, my 19th birthday, I had my first professional wrestling match uh, in Calgary uh, for the Hearts promotion. Um, and uh, I did 10 shows. That was the start of my indie career. And uh, I, I, they basically ran once a week, so I was out there for 10 weeks. Uh, and I was, you know, it was brutal. I was putting up the ring, you know, taking it down and wrestling, which is cool, of course, but I wasn't getting paid. And, uh, I was, I was dropping a lot of weight. I was starving. You know, I'd have to steal a dollar 35 and then, you know, change laying around the house from this place. I was staying with one of the trainers, uh, that was, a kind of a liaison to the hearts. Um, I was standing there for free sleep on his couch and I was uh, too embarrassed or proud to ask him for a meal. So, you know, he had to buy your own stuff. So I was like, you know, after a while I came home and, uh, by chance I hooked up with uh, WWF one night uh, in Connecticut at a live event. And, uh, I went backstage, um, Tony Gurria, uh, who was an agent at the time of, we call him now a uh, producer. Um, uh, but then, He's like, yeah, we're starting a new show uh, every every Monday from Manhattan called Monday Night Raw. We're going to need extras. Job guys gave me his business card, and uh, that's how it started. And that's how I got my foot in the door. So prior to any success, I had like 10 indie matches up in Calgary, and then I really just started doing jobs for WWE. Man, that was a fast rocket to success. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially now they have it such where they're getting the best guys in the world already and putting them in NXT, which is going to groom them to work uh, the WWE style, which has uh, changed a, a lot. Uh, when I broke in, you know, it's more progressive. It's much more uh, New Japan style or hard hitting style, but it always was. But uh, nowadays, you know, back then when I got my first chance to, to go over on TV, I'd never won a match, period. <laughs> uh, you know, now doing squash matches where I'm going over. So uh, it was really like back then it's you learned on the job. Uh, today the athletes are much more prepared. Um, but uh, I definitely, if things uh, weren't the way they were then, a lot of my stuff happened to me because I was right place, right time. But I was also very good. That's one thing I must say about the hearts. Um, I wasn't the best, uh, wasn't the flashiest, didn't have the best moveset, but Vince really, and the, the people at WWE still, they, they love guys that are good, basic pro wrestlers. Like, if you're a good pro wrestler, you have a spot with Vince. You know, and uh, that's one thing I did. I knew my basics very good. I knew how to work. Uh, and a lot of guys don't. You know, they know how to do a lot of great moves, but they wonder why they never get over. You know, very few guys are good at the basics. And then after you nail the basics, of course, you have to add. But um, and you'd be surprised uh, sometimes how ill-equipped some of the guys out there today are. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I just had Jazz on the show and I was just speaking with Jazz and we were talking about how, you know, nowadays there's a lot of spot wrestlers. So you get a lot of people coming up to you saying great spot instead of saying great match. Well, sure. I mean, and of course, I know, they're like I said, they're doing great strides uh, for that not to be. But um, back then, I mean, my first match uh, or time going up to Raw, being in a WWF ring, um, they're huge, first of all. And uh, so I got into the ring before the show, before Raw. It's one of the first five or six episodes of Raw ever. And I'm in the ring, and uh, 
like everything stopped. There was nobody at the ring. Everybody's in the back playing cards and stuff. Randy Savage was still there. Ultimate Warriors, like that era. And, um, you know, people didn't get in the ring. I just wanted to see how many steps it would take, like for my running of the ropes, make sure my footwork was down. Now, you go to Raw, everybody's in the ring figuring out high spots. And, you know, I'm going to throw three punches. You're going to go in this corner. Or back then, you know, it was weird to see somebody in the ring because they looked at it like, what is this mark? Not how to work. You know, it was very much that old school mentality of just get in there and do it and call it, and, you know, stuff like that. So, but that helped me because I learned how to work. I learned that I can go out there cold and tell a story. Uh, and it's, it's a real scary concept for a lot of guys. Um, but when you're taught that way and come up knowing nothing else, you get out of that real quick to where it does become second nature to where then, you know, being able to do spots when you have the basics is just easier. Whereas a lot of guys don't know how to work, learn the spots, and then have to learn how to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they got the process backwards, which could take a lot of time. But uh, anyways, that was my journey, and I thought it was uh, I thought it served me well. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, you got the chance to step in the ring with a bunch of legends. Uh, you had the chance to step in the ring with uh, Razor Ramon, a.k.a. Scott Hall. You got the chance to step in the ring with the likes of uh, Shawn Michaels, Shawn Walterman, uh, even Mentor. I'm just joking about that one. Yeah, I did, you know, and, and also another guy that a lot of people unfortunately didn't get to work who was a legend was uh, I had a couple of matches with Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. You know, when he was doing the perfect gimmick and he had Bobby Heenan with him, I mean, what a learning experience that is when you had those two geniuses out there and you're, you're going live, you know, and uh, Kurt's throwing you a little something in the match, you know, it's like you just listen and, you know, that greatness, uh, even though at the time you may not realize it, man, those experiences, if you analyze them and break them down, just like NFL players do tape. You know, you see, oh, wow, Kurt was trying to facilitate me in this position and trying to make this look good that way. And, you know, you see why they're doing it. And uh, that stuff rubs off on you, you know. So, yeah, it was great. I was very, uh, very lucky and I'm grateful. Yeah, I mean, definitely great, grateful to have such a person to look up to. Uh, I've never probably in my life seen a match with Kurt Henning that I say, you know what, I'm going to take a piss break. It doesn't happen. It never will happen. Uh, as I go back and watch some of his old stuff on the WWE Network, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, just watching him inside the ring, you already knew, even at a young age, that Kurt Henning was destined for greatness. He will always be down as one of the greats inside the ring. A lot of that transition to your work and your work ethic. And so with that being said, you're inside the WWF at the time and you lead the WWF. How does ECW come on the table? How does that happen? Well, uh, I had like, you know, well, it stayed there from 94. Well, I started in 93, but I got my contract in 94. Um, and then around 97, started to roll around. Sean uh, was the champion. I was traveling a lot with Sean Michaels, HBK. And uh, we were, you know, I knew the Aldo character, Aldo Montoya, wasn't going anywhere. We all knew that. It was almost like a starter gimmick. And uh, I'd gotten a couple of years of being on the road, wrestling a full schedule against, you know, like you said, I got, I got to wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin right uh, as he made the turn from ringmaster to Stone Cold, which was amazing. I got to work with Steve 30-plus times on the road. And actually, Steve mentioned something on uh, the second time I was on his podcast last year. He told a great story about how you know a lot of the stuff we did in the character allowed him freedom to make up some of that stuff on the fly. And, 
just, you know, so many guys, man, uh, that it was time. Sean and I kind of said, look, it's time for you to move on. So I had a meeting with Vince and Pat, Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson uh, at the office in Connecticut. And uh, I expressed to him that I wanted to, you know, I, I was good. I have some experience now and uh, that I wanted to learn how to work as a heel and get a new gimmick. And Vince agreed. Pat agreed. Uh, so they sent me to Memphis, uh, Jerry Lawler's territory, USWA, uh, for eight weeks uh, to learn how to be a heel. Uh, Rocky was down there. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he was starting with his, uh, you know, first steps into pro wrestling before he debuted as Rocky Maivia. Uh, so I was down there and working as a heel, but again, you know, Vince doesn't pay you when you're down there or he pays you very little. So, um, I was making 40 bucks a night for Waller's territory plus 500 bucks, uh, paycheck from Vince, but that's nothing compared to my overhead. I was playing for a place in Connecticut and a car and a life, and then also paying for an existence in Memphis. So I was losing money fast. Uh, ECW happened to have an angle running with uh, USWA and Lawler. It was like, you know, Jerry Lawler and USWA against, you know, crap, extremely crappy wrestling uh, from Philadelphia. So they had a big blow off in Memphis. Heyman was there, Dreamer, Taz, Sabu, Van Dam, and uh, Candido. And Chris Candido uh, was one of Paulie's right-hand men at the time in ECW. And uh, I'd known Chris and Tammy from the uh, Skip and Sunny days uh, over in the U.S. <laughs> and uh, Chris is like, look, you know, don't go back to Vince. Uh, what we got going on in the ECW is really cool. He says, you won't make as much, but, you know, you'll make more than you're making now. And we'll give you a hell of a push. And, uh, you know, who knows where that can go? Because, you know, we all know an ECW will start to make noise. Um, so I went to ECW, and uh, after their first pay-per-view, um, it was barely legal. It already happened, and they were getting ready for November to remember. The Just Incredible character was born, uh, and I went into uh, my first pay-per-view match against Mikey Whipwreck. So uh, that's around that timeline, and that's kind of how things all happened. So it was, again, all uh, my whole career has been uh, right place, right time. <laughs> and uh, that was just another instance, and uh, that's where I went. You know, I signed with Paul Lee, and I stayed there and, uh, you know, had the, probably the best three and a half years of my entire career there. You know? Now, I remember when I first seen you uh, on television. Of course, ECW used to come on very late for us, but I had a friend of mine that actually recorded ECW's uh, pay-per-views. So I can't remember the pay-per-view right now, but it's okay. But inside this pay-per-view, we had, uh, it was yourself, Chris Candino, uh, versus Lance Storm and a partner of his choice. And out of nowhere, you all have him uh, in a predicament inside of a hole, and he yells, I'll give you head, and it all, out comes Al Snow. And it got the loudest pop that night. You're right, right, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I mean, uh, that was one thing that was, uh, in those days, it was... Uh, really right at the cusp, like uh, right right before the uh, the Attitude Era officially began. It was already headed to, that way. You know, Steve Austin had finally started to come, you know, to, you know, when he wrestled Brett that night at Survivor Series, when he had that, all the blood coming down from his face, that was around that at the same time. Um, stuff was really happening. And I thought, man, ECW is going to be special. Uh, people are going to be talking about this because it wasn't WCW and all those horrible angles, throwing away money, you know, trying to do, you know, Mr. T and Hulk Hogan, you know, from 15 years ago. 
that's what WCW was offering and WWF at the time was really struggling, um, but was starting to come along. But still, it would always be the WWF and the McMahon show. And I think ECW was really something um, very similar to what New Japan is now. It, it was an insurgent. It was fans are sick of the the same old. Um, I, I want some different entertainment. I want, you know, I want different pro wrestling entertainment. And we were low budget, which I thought was a gimmick in its own right. It wasn't even meant to be that way, but it turned out to be very punk rock, very bare minimums. And we let the action speak for itself. And it was action that they weren't, the fans weren't getting in other places. Good wrestling, guys like Tajiri, super crazy. Didn't bring some of the best Japanese stars. I got to work with the legendary great Sasuke. Um, you know, and that's just a little bit. They'd bring in guys like Dusty Rhodes, Barry Windham was in there. Uh, so many legends, Jake Roberts, you know, Sid. So, you know, it was cool and, uh, it was a viable third option. So that's when wrestling was really at its hottest. And, uh, you know, I really wish that, uh, ECW would have stayed around, but, uh, right now it, it seems like, uh, pro wrestling really has, uh, so many options. I mean, there's so many great organizations um, that, you know, you an impact isn't even really one of them, but so many other great organizations to watch wrestling, uh, especially with Ring of Honor and New Japan selling out Madison Square Garden. That's going to be yeah. sick, you know? So, uh, yeah. you know, it's really exciting to be a wrestler, um, but I'm more of a semi-retired wrestler, but uh, to be a pro wrestling fan, I should say, it's uh, really exciting. Oh, yes, it's definitely really exciting. I mean, wrestling to wrestling fans is 25 hours a day, eight days a week. But you can really look at some of these uh, organizations. It reminds you of the territorial days. And you look at a lot of these organizations out there, you can see, you can feel ECW's presence inside them far as uh, the hardcore nature. I mean, you have, of course, GCW, Game Changer Wrestling. You have uh, AIW. Uh, you also have uh, MLW, Major League Wrestling. And all these places have that feel of ECW, but the very first place I seen the Singapore Kane was inside ECW. Yeah, I, it really was. And, and, you know, we had to credit, uh, still to this day, one of the great minds in pro wrestling, which was Paul Heyman. I mean, Paul was young. He uh, really had this uh, him against the world mentality. And it was something Paul wanted to uh, to show Bischoff and Vince. Um, look, you know, I have one of the great minds. And this was Paul's baby as much as anybody else. So when you have, you know, Paul's genius. Um, and he was getting a lot of his ideas from Japan at the time, which a lot of people were ignoring, but, uh, Japan has always had the greatest, the richest culturally, um, uh, argue Mexico, but Japan really, uh, has this rich culture and heritage with professional wrestling. And they were doing FMW was doing Singapore Canes and the barbed wire stuff. Uh, that was again, I mean, wrestling was doing that. Terry Funk was doing that in the seventies, but it wasn't on a national stage. Um, and Paul just really took a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that was hot in Japan, which was a lot of that blood and guts stuff, anti-establishment, and ran with it. And um, you know, and and he and he got uh, a lot of the best players in the game, you know, around it. Terry Funk, definitely instrumental. Uh, Sabu became an icon. Uh, you know, putting his body on the line in matches that'll always be, you know. Are some of the most influential in all of wrestling and how it's changed from the 80s to today. Sabu had a big hand in that, you know, and then so many others, but it was just a, it was a cultural thing that, uh, you know, it'll be hard pressed to, to have something so uh, organic happen. Uh, and, you know, 
uh, it, right now it shows. I mean, we have all kinds, Japanese strong style, and, and Vince McMahon also picking up on on the stuff that New Japan had been doing. I mean, if you really look at the top of the roster um, of working wrestlers, you have AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura, um, you know, Finn Balor, even Samoa Joe, who came out of the Indies, but still arguably one of the best wrestlers, you know, came out of that kind of mold, you know, not to mention, you know, so many other guys that have picked up the ball. But, uh, you know, those guys really um, being on top of the WWE, um, shows that Japan right now more than ever has a huge influence in uh, the entering product of all American promotions. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with that. And I have something that I definitely want to say. Uh, they say that Kevin Ash and Scott Hall are responsible for the way the pay structure is right now inside the business. But I like to credit ECW for bringing hardcore wrestling to North America. Because when you think hardcore wrestling, the very first organization is ECW. You you have to give credit to ECW. You just have to. Far as here in the U.S. And of course, you know, you have to give credit to Japan for that style. But uh, leaving from there, I mean, ECW's doors, they closed in 2001 and you end up back inside the WWF at the time and you end up inside of a faction with X-Pac. Whose idea was that? Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, all I know is uh, I did ECW's last show, um, and I knew, even though Paul was uh, telling us otherwise, um, I knew that there was no more ECW, uh, and I didn't wait. I knew I had connections there. So uh, this was the uh, the old days of America Online, <laughs> where you have to have your computer hooked up to, to a landline, literally. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I emailed, emailed Jim Ross uh, saying I was open. Uh, we threw around a ballpark figure. I was surprised that he bit. I uh, got a three-year, six-figure deal. Um, went to TV. Paulie uh, calls me. Uh, this was, you know, when cell phones also were first, first being used regularly. He calls me and he's like, uh, where are you? I wasn't at the building. And I was like, uh, maybe 30 minutes uh, from being uh, at the Nassau Coliseum in uh, New York. And he's, I'm like, what do you mean, where are you? He goes, you're not there yet. You're late. I'm like, how do you know this? He goes, I'm at the show. I'm commentating. <laughs> Here's the son of a bitch who told us not to sign, to stick with him. And he's telling me I'm not there. Where are you? Oh, I'm commentating tonight. Real cool being, you know, I, you know, but imagine how the other poor bastards felt. I know I'm debuting live on Raw, but the guy you're holding on to, not going anywhere else, is commentating for the enemy. So, I mean, you had to be smart those days, but uh, I don't know who X Factor, I think it was uh, Hunter's idea and kids, because um, they, you know, they needed tag teams. Uh, Sean and I have always been very good friends to remain to this day, one of my best friends. And, um, you know, I thought it was a great idea. I thought we could be a hell of a tag team. Um, you know, and uh, it's a shame that they screwed it up. They screwed it up for several reasons. Um, Sean was having uh, some issues with the WWE office as far as re-signing. She just come off of DX, you know, and that was really over. So they were looking to rebrand him, and uh, they were supposed to give us the tag team titles. Um, we were supposed to beat the Hardys. We ended up working with the Hardys briefly, but, uh, you know, and then uh, something went wrong where Sean uh, wanted more money. They weren't going to give it to him, so he, you know, he disconnected from it. So then they started just 
separating Albert and putting him in singles matches. And then we did a small angle on Sunday Night Heat um, where uh, Albert uh, sided with Kid, and they kind of did say, you know something that nobody watched. And I ended up wrestling, uh, you know, Baldo, fucking whatever his name was at the time. What was his name, anyways? Albert. It ended up, you know, we broke up the team in, in a horrible fashion. But it was a shame. It could have been a really good team. And then I just uh, went on to do the WCW ECW invasion angle, which it was just a bunch of wrestlers in the background and Stone Cold and all this shit. But you know, stayed there for a little while, and then uh, that was it, man. I went off to uh, do some stuff for All Japan and, you know, did some Ring of Honor in uh, 2006. Uh, went back and did, uh, the, you know, the one-night stand. Or 2005, I, I'm sorry. Went back and uh, did one-night stand and also got signed to do the ECW reboot where I had uh, three or four matches, two with CM Punk, one with uh, Sabu, and one with Balls. Also did a, a bunch of... Uh, co-main event with uh, Sandman on the road for ECW house shows. We did a dueling Singapore cane match, but uh, it was never the same as you know. And, uh, and pretty much since then I've just been, I did impact and, uh, you know, kind of winded my career down where I'm, uh, you know, transitioning to just autographs, podcasts and movies. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. Uh, far as, um, far as trying to say sober that is uh so you're getting ready to transition into movies and you have a new movie coming out a documentary uh tell me more about that yes uh very excited man uh uh the movie is called credible uh for all the listeners uh you can go to uh com. it connects you to the trailer and uh, all all the things, uh, all social media outlets for the movie and for myself. Um, it's basically a documentary about my life. Um, growing up in Waterbury, Connecticut, wrestling fan, um, getting into the business, and uh, you know, becoming a drug addict, alcoholic, and uh, the movie uh, really depicts you know me trying to get sober. Um, I've had some high profile arrests, uh, you know. And some, a lot of bad things happened uh, this year. I'm glad it's documented. I'm glad I'm talking to you now, clean and sober. But, uh, you know, the movie only you know has one more day of shooting uh, before we, we already have a letter of intent for Netflix. It should be out uh, and edited by as early as the spring. So we have one more day to wrap everything up, which will be sometime in uh, this month of November. So, uh, you know, I'm really excited. Um, you know, and, but it's a, it's a real struggle. Uh, the producer and the director both said that, uh, you know, it almost is like, uh, a real life, uh, movie, the wrestler, uh, with Mickey Rourke. And it's very similar to that where it shows, uh, you know, the dreams and hopes and catastrophes that happen and, uh, the road to recovery and redemption. And can you even recover from those things? So I'm, uh, in, in a way I'm, uh, I'm, you know, a test experiment for, uh, for this kind of stuff because it's not like the, the story hasn't even been written. You know, the end hasn't been written because it's about my life. You know, it's the day to day things very similar to, you know, my friend's, uh, uh, resurrection of Jake, Jake Roberts's thing, uh, his documentary. So I look forward to it. Um, if you guys, you know, all the information is, uh, on credible documentary.com and also go to my Twitter account and my Instagram. Both are at PJ Polacco. So definitely check that out. Well, 
I, I didn't even tell the people how we met. Um, so I'm getting off the plane. I'm in New Orleans. So I get off the plane and um, I'm heading towards, I guess it's uh, where you can uh, get your Uber or your, your taxi or your limo at. And I turn to my right and it's just incredible. And I just had to say something. Yeah, yeah. I remember that, man. We had, we had a good talk, you know. It was definitely, uh, definitely cool. Yeah, I saw you. You were at the NWA show, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was there live in Nashville. Yep, I uh, was watching your uh, your one of your streams, one of your live streams. I believe you were doing. And uh, yeah, that was the only way I I was watching the show thanks to you, brother. <laughs> Definitely <was> cool. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, man. It definitely meant a lot to me uh, for you to come on. If you have anything else uh, pertaining to the Credible Documentary, keep sending it in my way, man. I'll keep plugging it. I have my fingers crossed with this project. I cannot wait till next year for this to drop on Netflix. And continue to fight the good fight, man. If anyone can beat this, it's you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And also, anytime you want me back, you want to talk anything else, I'm always here. So pick me up. Keep in touch, okay? Hey, most definitely, man. Love to have you back on. I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> All right, my friend. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and thank you, my friend. It's uh, always an honor. Always, always. The voice that you just heard on this podcast was the voice of Justin Credible. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on Instagram. He gave it to you early in the show. Hopefully you were paying attention. But if you were not paying attention, I will go ahead and give you those once again. His Twitter handle is the same as his Instagram handle. So hopefully you're able to comprehend this. You can find him at P-J-P-O-L-A-C-O, also Credible Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, make sure you like, share, and subscribe, Marks with Mikes. Also, follow Credible Podcasts. This is episode number 42. I'm Mr. Six Foot Nine, and we're out. Peace. <laughs>